Welcome everyone, One World Podcast listeners. Today we have an amazing opportunity to hear from a master in environmental sciences. He's written a book, Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change, a critically acclaimed book, and studies air pollution and epidemiology at the University of California, Irvine. From air pollution scientist to accomplished author, uh, it seems like he can do it all. So please welcome Dr. Shahir Mazri. Thank Thanks you for having me. Us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. What is something that you would share to our listeners about the state of pollution? Absolutely. Uh, I think that if, I think you're right, if we saw pollution piling up in a more visible sense that we'd take action a lot uh, sooner and uh, more aggressive. I think that uh, it's important to note that while pollution is largely invisible, at least many forms of it, many forms of air pollution, we're still seeing in the United States, uh, for instance, which is a, a pretty atmospherically clean country compared to some of the more uh, up and coming industrial co uh, countries, we're seeing a couple hundred thousand people a year die prematurely in the United States due to air pollution. So uh, by no means are we, uh, is, is the US um, not being affected by air pollution. And on a global level, we're seeing somewhere around three and a half million people die prematurely due to air pollution. And a lot of that is fossil fuel related, uh, whether it's uh, the oil or gas or coal. And I think that an important thing to, to understand is climate change. Uh, let me back up for a minute, actually. Uh, fossil fuels, uh, when we burn them, we not only liberate greenhouse gases, which are contributing to the warming of the, the climate, but we're also releasing some of the most toxic uh, pollutants to the atmosphere that are just bad for health, bad to breathe. And um, air pollution, you know, this field that I study, uh, that I've focused my career on, is one of those intersecting fields where, uh, you know, we have public health on one sense from a respiratory morbidity, mortality standpoint, but then we also have this enormous public health crisis that is climate change, uh, both of which can be controlled and improved substantially by cutting one root cause, and that is the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, we get to, we get sort of a, a co-optimized co uh, situation. We get to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, by reducing our fossil fuel consumption. Right, and I don't think people realize that pollution also impacts our cognitive abilities, that you know, it impacts our ability to learn, to perform. Um, I'm sure you've seen those studies as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Air pollution is is just one of those things that affects so many aspects of our health, whether it's, uh, you know, heart attacks, which is not necessarily very intuitive. We see, you know, we think of cardiovascular disease as strictly nutrition based, but uh, no, air pollution is a, is a factor, plays a role in cardiovascular disease. Um, we have... Uh, of course, actually, 2013, the World Health Organization officially deemed air pollution a human carcinogen, so it causes different forms of cancer. Um, asthma, of course, uh, goes way back. And as you mentioned, even cognitive abilities. There's been some studies that have looked at the association between air pollution and autism. And, uh, you know, that's something that, of course, is going to take more research to iron out. But uh, there's absolutely, there's evidence that air pollution just affects so many aspects of our health. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those 
it's one of those things that I, I think, again, we don't think about too much because generally speaking, we look out the window and we can see the blue sky and the sun. Um, but there's ultrafine and fine particles in the atmosphere among various gases that are, uh, that are toxic and they're coming right out of the tailpipes of our cars, they're coming out of the smokestacks of our industries, um, even out, out of farming practices. And these are, in some cases, uh, pollutants that we can, we readily have the technologies to eliminate or reduce from our local breathing space, our, our local air, and we really ought to do that. Uh, there's a huge a huge public health gain to be realized uh, if we see more electric vehicles, more hybrid vehicles, those that aren't burning fuel uh, right around our, our houses, our towns. And of course, the same could be said to the larger industries as well. Yeah, absolutely. And our cars idling. I mean, they are saying that in some countries, you know, children in their first year of life are exposed to pollution equal to smoking hundreds of cigarettes. You know, and we're so concerned about cigarette smoke that we ban it, you know, in restaurants and on airplanes. But we have to realize that pollution is the same thing. Uh, that's right. And in some cities, living there is, uh, you know, pollution is so high that living in certain cities is akin to smoking a pack of cigarettes your entire lifetime, which can knock us about seven years or so off your life expectancy. Um, and as you mentioned with children, it's extremely important, especially developing brains. Uh, children are also more vulnerable because their um, their their uh, lung volume relative to the size of their bodies. And we also sadly live in a society where there's still dramatic uh, inequities between you know whether uh, you're a high income household or a low income household. We see just uh, major correlations between uh, where you live and essentially how uh, healthy you're able to be by virtue of your surroundings. Yeah, that's such an important point. And, you know, climate justice is always, you know, at the heart of everything that we're doing. And more of those stories need to be told. And that's why we just appreciate your research. And we also appreciate that you took kind of a year out of your life to go on the road for climate action. So you created this initiative on the road for climate action. Tell us about that road trip. It is epic. Oh, well, thank you. It really grew out of a desire for years that I've had to really engage in climate outreach, climate communication. There's a lot of good science that already exists out there related to climate change. Uh, but after graduating from grad school and kind of immersing myself in, in more of uh, the non-academic uh, uh, communities, I realized that a lot of that science wasn't getting out there to the public. So after a couple of years of working at the university, as a research scientist, I, I really felt a growing uh, desire to uh, help bridge that gap between science and the public. And I wasn't really doing that, I don't think, through my career work, because most of the studies that we publish are being read by fellow academics, professors, other experts. So the idea of going on the road for climate action occurred to uh, Athena, my fiance, and I. And uh, it happened to be a time, per uh, time period that was opening up in 2018. Um, where she was finishing grad school and um, and I was uh, my contract was was going to be um, basically I, I kind of have an annual contract basis so at the end of June it was you know there was a possibility I could just decide to postpone getting another signing another contract she could postpone getting 
for a job, which most, most teachers do after they get their teacher's credential. So we basically put our lives on hold uh, in 2018 and decided to instead go on the road and do this climate outreach. So we visited about 36 different states over the period of, uh, I think it was three months in the first, the first uh, project. And then we came back and uh, did another 16 cities over another couple months uh, in, the, in the following year. But the whole idea there was to basically visit cities around the country, different communities, and uh, share the message of you know, climate science and, and what's going on and how important it is that we all get in the uh, fight for climate action and empower those communities to take action in their own uh, at the local level. Uh, and we surveyed them. We surveyed over 500 people. In fact, I think it's close to 1,000. Uh, and we we were asking them, you know, what's your perspective on climate change? What kinds of observations have you noticed in your areas if you've lived in there for a long time? And uh, we interviewed many people uh, to kind of tell the story to the other, to the American public who wasn't driving around the country with us. We wanted to share those stories uh, with the world. So I, I founded a website, Road for Climate Action, and um, I'm still publishing videos today uh, on YouTube that are on my website for people to kind of tap into those stories of climate change and how it's affecting people around the country as opposed to uh you know just seeing the pie charts and the parts per million i think uh, those stories are really important in uh, resonating with individuals so uh, there were many different facets to this project and uh interestingly it hasn't ground to a halt just because we're off the road i'm still doing a number of virtual presentations around the country uh, podcasts such as this uh, i mentioned to you before the podcast that uh, we just actually had a study published, which is the first peer-reviewed study to come from this Road for Action project, which I'm really excited about. And uh, that's a study that basically quantified a lot of what we experienced on the road through the surveys and one-on-one -on -one interviews. And that study is just uh, available on my website. And excitingly, it's uh, an open access publication, so you don't have to pay to read it, which is not the case for many of the peer-reviewed scientific papers. That's true. And we will definitely make sure that we share the website um, along with the podcast description as well, because I think people will want to access that. So you basically went to about 50 states and hit the road to talk about climate action. Um, was it mostly schools or uh, tell us more about the people you spoke with? Sure. So we didn't quite get to 50. I think we're at 42 states now, so we're about eight shy. <laughs> but uh, we. We visited a lot of different communities. So schools, colleges, uh, we did sometimes even coffee houses, churches. Uh, let's see what else uh, we, we visited um, quite a few churches actually, and sometimes actually breweries. So organizations, we would reach out to, to communities, largely uh, a community member that we'd get put in touch with through some of the volunteer groups out here. And they would basically help us organize an event in their community. They were the best position to do that, obviously, since they lived there. And sometimes those events would take place at a, a church or a school, but uh, sometimes at a restaurant or a brewery or a cafe, something like that. So we really did a variety of different talks. Sometimes I would actually give, like I mentioned, at colleges uh, come into a classroom that was actually uh, some some course being offered and I came in as a guest speaker uh, a number of times on the East Coast. So uh, quite a few different different settings. I love that because, you know, we all um, 
it's a topic that touches all of us in so many different ways. Um, you know, I want to ask about your book, Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. What is one of them? Because for me, I think a lot of people think, oh, the earth is just going to warm by one to two degrees. I can handle that. You know, I live, um, you know, in the mountains, so I don't mind if it's, you know, uh, going from 52 degrees to 55 degrees. Talk about that misconception. Yeah, so it I think that that's a, a good one to point out. This, you know, one degree or so warming doesn't sound very scary because temperatures fluctuate by 30 degrees or so on a, di a diurnal basis. So um, it's important to note that that's an average. Uh, we've got some areas that are actually getting cooler that are, uh, and some areas that are getting warmer, but on average, we're seeing a gradual increase. Um, but the variability around that number, that one degree or two degrees Celsius, the variability is, is dramatic. Um, in certain communities, we're seeing um, many more heat waves. I think when we launched out on the road in 2018, uh, just the year prior, uh, Nevada had some, for instance, I think it was, I think it was Reno that had uh, 16 extra 100 degree plus days that year than had ever been recorded. Um, those are the kinds of temperature swings that places are seeing uh, when when I was uh, launching that, we also had the Arctic uh, melting in the dead of winter. So in certain places, such as the polar regions of the planet, uh, temperatures are not are not uh, going up by one degree. I think on, on average across the Arctic, it's something like 10 or 11 degrees of warming that has been seen over the uh, since the you know pre-industrial era. So it's it's different uh, depending on where you are. And again the average is not so is not as important from a sort of tangible physical how you experience climate change perspective as the the peaks and the 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 troughs so what are how are the extreme temperatures changing how are those heat waves changing over time are we getting more of them how many more of them are we getting colder days how more uh, how many more and um, that's how people are going to experience climate change uh, the average is is something that is uh, a scientific metric that we pay attention to to understand the overall trend of the climate, but it's not very, uh, not right. very useful from an individual observation standpoint. Yeah, and it's it's more of the global surface temperature. You know, it's a it's a bigger picture. But like you're saying, and it translates into our summer, like here in SoCal. I mean, a lot of it was a heat wave. I mean, the entire summer, and people who lived without air conditioning were, you know. Really hurting, um, and then we're also yeah. seeing animal populations. All of a sudden, you know, um, hundreds of birds are dying, or hundreds of um, animals are dying because the heat has gotten too beyond what they can survive. Um, and so we're we're heading into our sixth mass extinction right now. We're seeing, um, I think now the numbers are you know upwards of eighty percent of our you know biodiversity is getting lost right now and so we're under you know real siege that um we need to you know um, address as soon as we can in any any way possible um what are some of the things that you think um we can do now um that you probably covered it in some of your talks because you don't want to just talk about the crisis you want to talk about here there yeah. are solutions there's legislation there's renewable energy, there's community choice energy, there, you know, don't yeah. buy certain palm oil products. So 
Yeah, I think that, so I kind of talk about the three pillars of climate action. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned them in, in my book, but they were uh, at least not with that phrase, but that's kind of a phrase that I've been using to uh, in my presentations lately. And uh, I see the three pillars of climate action kind of ordered from a hierarchical standpoint from uh, number one being civic duty. I think it's, you know, we've been talking about carbon footprint for a long time and it's incredibly important, but uh, we can really do a lot by changing a few policies and getting some people elected to uh, public office that actually recognize the climate crisis as an issue and have a plan to do something about it. So, so doing something as simple as making a phone call to your local representative or your federal representative, um, supporting climate legislation that's on the table, uh, getting active civically, I think is is the most important thing we can do at this point, because we're just at a, a state in the climate change crisis that uh, we don't have time for the gradual, um, you know, the, the gradual individual philanthropic actions. I think we need to see some real top-down uh, changes that are going to affect the whole economy over a short time period and that are going to do so in a dramatic enough fashion. So civic action, I think, is incredibly important. Going to vote, voting's uh, instrumental, um, is up at the top. And, and that doesn't preclude you from the other two pillars of climate action, which I also think are very important. Number two being um, outreach and education, and number three being the carbon footprint standpoint. So I'm always talking about getting out there and uh, talking about climate change. We just don't solve problems that we don't talk about, whether it's climate change or many other issues. We've got to talk about um, problems that we want to solve. And we've got to lead, I think, as examples in our community. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing something good to reduce carbon emissions or take action, I think that it's important to not bottle that all up in a secret. Uh, I think it's important to be proud of it. And, and when people ask you why it is you're biking or why it is uh, you're, you're maybe canvassing for an elected official, sharing why, you know, and, and uh, that helps tell people that it's okay to care about, you know, certain topics. And uh, I think that certain organizations um, recognize the important importance also of you know writing articles and doing uh, newspapers things like that. You're doing a podcast that's also important. Um, but there's so much also that can be done in addition to trying to write your own papers, uh, sharing existing papers and uh, sharing articles that have been published using social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Spotify, what have you. And then number three, I think, is carbon footprint. And I, again, I, it's not because it's not important, but it's because we've been talking about it for a long time that I, I think that at this point, we've got to put some other things at the, at the top. But carbon footprint is extremely important. I live by, um, you know, I, I try to preach, uh, practice what I preach and, uh, you know, not use the air conditioning and the heating, uh, you know, at least as little as possible. Uh, we had a 170 degree, 107 degree temperature here in in orange uh, over the summer and uh, the whole summer I, I avoided my air conditioning. I didn't use it once. So <laughs> I do try to reduce my carbon footprint as much as possible. And uh, I think we all ought to pay attention to things we can do on an individual level to keep ourselves from um, adding to the problem of carbon pollution. Diet is another, another main example of that. Yeah, I think it is a great idea to have a meatless Monday or, you know, a veggie Friday and, you yeah. know, um, open yourself up to a lot of other great healthy things and more, you know, small farming and local, you know, um, farmers markets, you can still do those kinds of things. And a lot of, 
A lot of the refill stations, instead of buying more plastic um, shampoo bottles, you can um, look up refill stations like EcoNow and they'll even deliver it. You don't even have to go to the store. Um, and there's also farmer market type boxes where they deliver weekly um, fresh locally grown vegetables and fruits. So there's neat things that you can do as a family, you know, we don't need everybody to be doing it perfectly. We need right. all of us doing it imperfectly so that yeah. we can get to that place where, and you can have fun. I mean, I have fun with my kids doing and coming up with new things every day. This year we made our own Christmas decorations and holiday decorations, you know. Oh, that's great. You know, so there's lots of fun things that you can look at doing. Yeah, now, yeah. Um, I want to get to this is, um, you know, what can what could you tell like an average person about the science, you know, of the accelerating climate crisis that we're under? What could you share with them that that you feel really kind of sums it up in terms of, you know, what's happening? Because for like me, I've seen we've had the 20th hottest years pretty much in this century. Yeah. Uh, for me, that speaks volumes. Um, but what what are some of the things when you go on the road that you, that really drives home what's happening? Well, one thing that I think uh, one way to phrase it, I think that's important is that I've only recently thought of is you know we've come with carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, we haven't seen carbon dioxide emissions or concentrations rather this high for about. Uh, several million years at this point. So last time CO2 was this high was uh, somewhere around three to six million years ago. Now, the last time that we've seen this dramatic of an increase in carbon dioxide emissions over such a short period of time was probably about 65 million years ago. That's an incredibly long time ago. I think we can all sort of grasp the gravity of that. So what we're seeing right now is potentially never happened before. And it, and, and if so, it was uh, tens of millions of years ago. What we're seeing is a global experiment. Um, and we don't know exactly how that experiment is going to uh, end up. But people's careers are dedicated to answering that question. And uh, the answers don't look good. So the best thing that we can do is try to uh, drive a halt to this experiment and to try to get ourselves back to a place of uh, of stable uh, or lower greenhouse gas emissions. The planet is oftentimes, I think, invoked as, um, you know, the reason that we need to address climate change because, uh, you know, for the environment, for the planet. But uh, in actual, you know, actuality, it's really human civilization that stands to uh, to, I guess, uh, to lose, uh, for, and of course, all the current species that inhabit the planet. Uh, but the Earth itself has been, you know, around for, you know, four and a half billion years, and the climate itself has gone through dramatic fluctuations. Some 600 million years ago, we had a snowball Earth where the whole entire planet uh, is. Uh, is thought to have been completely covered with ice. We have a lot of good evidence of that, and it's projected or estimated to have happened twice in Earth's history. Fast forward to 100 million years ago, there was no ice anywhere on Earth. So the fluctuations that Earth has seen are extremely dramatic, 
but humans were not around to experience any of that. And uh, we've only been really advanced civilization here for about 10,000 years. And the climate has been uh, characterized as a very stable time for the climate. So uh, we really have not stood the test of time as a civilized uh, society. And we have everything to lose if climate change, uh, if Earth decides to de become destable in terms of its climate due to human activity. Uh, we have, uh, there's nothing that suggests that the climate can't go into one of its rapid runaway swings that it's seen previously in Earth's history. Again, uh, the snowball Earth planet or the hothouse Earth planet, there's uh, nothing that precludes the planet from diving back into one of those extremely uninhabitable zones, uh, at least uh, something, some shift like that would be, uh, and, and far less than that would be enough to dis disrupt human civilization and uh, and bring a lot of what we've uh, adapted to and uh, become, I guess, acquainted with and, and come to enjoy in life, uh, bring a lot of that to a halt. Um, let's maybe look at leaving on a positive note. What are yeah. some of the solutions that you feel, you know, we need to kind of look at and embrace and, and, and kind of expand upon? They all exist now. Yeah, they do. I think that it's, I think that the shift to green infrastructure is going to be incredibly important. I think that we need to start seeing, um, you know, there is a lot of government money that gets spent on a lot of different things. And uh, we need to start seeing, I think, some subsidies for some of these green technologies uh, increase. We've got a grandfathered in oil and gas um, industry that I think uh, we need to see some money shift into uh, helping people buy cars that are, uh, you know, green, uh, cleaner, not clean burning, but even clean, uh, cleaner burning. And that'll take care of some of our air pollution problem, but also some of our greenhouse gas emissions problems. We need to see, I think, uh, some of the the uh, subsidies for the fossil fuel industry start to dwindle. Um, I'd like to see agriculture start to come back to a little bit more of a community level. You mentioned that, uh, farmers markets, things like that. I think that it would be great to see communities start to engage in um, local permaculture. I I've been uh, really enjoying the last few years of gardening here since I moved back to Southern California. Athena and I, I don't think we bought a head of lettuce for three years. I've been growing grains uh, for years now. We had, I just counted <laughs> yesterday. Um, I had been keeping track of all the tomatoes we grew over spring and I finally tabulated them all and we counted, uh, I counted 900 cherry tomatoes and about a, a 150 beefsteak tomatoes that we grew in the spring. So. Um, you know, if we're all doing little bits and pieces like that, we can help to, to bring our society to a place that is more positive, more sustainable. Uh, that's all good for community interaction, too, which is good for our psychology. I think that farmers markets are, are beneficial in that way, too. And I think also thinking about consuming less. I think that we're a very, uh, I think we've been led through society's uh, heavy folk, heavy, um, heavy, financial emphasis on marketing and commercials we've been led to think that we get joy out of buying more and more things and uh, when we buy something new we tend to shift to the next new item that we want to buy and that just, just uh, perpetuates a culture of waste and waste is um, a big 
part of the climate change problem. 40% of the food that we even eat in this country is wasted. So um, shifting our mindset to be more conservationist, uh, conserve resources, buy less, consume less, uh, buy maybe pay for more services that benefit our lives rather than objects. Um, pay for experiences that benefit our lives rather than material possessions. So uh, these are all bits and pieces of what I think will make for a more habitable uh, future. Um, I couldn't agree more. And um, one of the things that we've been doing in our chapter is looking at ways to get more trees planted. So every time we have a special event that's on Zoom or virtual, everybody who attends, we plant a tree for them. So oh, wow. that's, that's great. Neat neat way to just keep paying it forward too. I'm glad you mentioned that because a tree planted is an easy way that a person can uh, help reduce the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere and also help to shade our communities because uh, it's only going to be getting warmer in many areas. So uh, trying to reduce that urban heat island effect is a, is a nice service you can do for your community. Right. And it cleans the air, right? Those trees. Yeah. They are a natural way to clean our air, but um, you know the big steps that we can make is really reducing emissions, and it's totally doable. And I think people need to remember that your elected officials at the city level, um, the federal level, want to hear from you. If you're their constituent, that's their goal to meet with you. And it's been so easy through you know Climate Reality and other groups to call them up, email them, and set up those meetings. They want to hear from you. And you don't have to be an expert on the climate or any of the topic. You just need to be a constituent that cares. It's absolutely right. And uh, hearing you mention that reminded me of perhaps the one single most important recommendation that I would give anybody listening to this podcast, which is just to link up with any climate action group in your area. Uh, the likelihood that you're going to remember everything that was talked about on this podcast is pretty low but if you're engaged actively uh, with a chapter in your neighborhood whether it's climate reality project or another green uh, group um, you know that's your best shot of of staying active over the long haul and uh, you know gleaning information that's going to stick with you over time and contributing uh, importantly over time so Right. And I bet you or I would be happy to talk to their book club or their gardening chapter, anything to help them keep the climate conversation going. A hundred percent. I make myself very available for things like this. So please feel free to reach out. You got it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to keeping the climate conversation going and protecting our one world. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you.